Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Lawmakers are back in town facing the same issues they did before leaving town. Appropriations, continuing resolutions, as well as a possible government shutdown and impeachment. The Army, Navy, and Air Force secretaries took the unprecedented step of writing a powerful op-ed in the Washington Post assailing Senator Tommy Tuberville for blocking the promotions of more than 300 senior officers, which prompted the Alabama Republican to make clear He's not changing track. Ukraine makes battlefield gains and increasingly strikes Russia as President Zelensky sacks his defense minister for corruption in his organization. America and its allies are pledging more aid. Vladimir Putin has rejected a renewed grain deal as Moscow targets Ukrainian grain and port facilities and works diligently and successfully to get anti-Ukrainian leaders elected in nearby Slovakia. Despite facing sanctions to hobble its ability to make advanced semiconductors, Huawei released a new smartphone with a seven micron chip during Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's visit to China. Facebook and Microsoft both announced they've blocked sophisticated efforts by China to disinform uh, and to manipulate the American public, and North Korea claims to have a sea-based nuclear deterrent. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, the must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. Hope everybody is tanned, rested, and ready for what is going to be a very busy fall um, and hope nobody did uh, too much labor on Labor Day. Uh, Michael, uh, it's 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 Groundhog Day. Um, you know, if I assemble the number of times in the past <laughs> seven years uh, since this program began where we are talking about um, uh, organizational insanity or, frankly, the last 15 years of my career or our careers, uh, we, we, we'd really be wealthy. Um, but at least it's a little bit different each time in terms of the madness. Walk us through. I'm just going to give you a wide swath. Appropriations, CR, possible shutdown, possible impeachment. Go. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we've got uh... – Everybody else can just go home now because this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. So we have 22 days until uh, the federal government runs out of money. Uh, and 22 whole days. 22 whole days. But it's really less than that because uh, the House will be in session for only 11 legislative days uh, this month. Now, on our last uh, podcast, we said the House will be in for 12. They actually gave back uh, next Friday. So next week, they're really only here for about you know uh, two and a half days. They come in for votes on, on, two, on um, Tuesday night. They vote... Uh, then on Wednesday, and then they fly back uh, home on Thursday. Uh, and, you know, in addition to what you've laid out, there are also a lot of other things that need to get done in September. Uh, you know, as a side note, FAA reauthorization expires at the end of September. The Farm Bill has to be passed by the end of September. Uh, FISA renewal. And, of course, you know, there's pressure, obviously, for disaster relief because of the hurricane and the uh, fires in Maui and, uh, and, and the Ukraine funding. <clears throat> so uh, we'll take this one step at a time. The Senate. Uh, it continues to behave like grownups and move their process forward. Uh, they plan to take up a minibus next week of three appropriations bills, uh, the agriculture <clears throat> FDA bill, uh, Milcon BA, and uh, the transportation uh, HUD bill. Uh, at the same time, the House plans to take up the defense appropriations bill next week. Uh, that will promise to be just as chaotic, if not more so, than when the NDAA uh, was put on the floor. Uh, right. Already hundreds of amendments have been filed to the Defense Appropriations Bill, very similar to what we saw in NDAA, amendments prohibiting funds for abortion, uh, prohibiting funds uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, prohibiting funds for gender reassignment, uh, drag queen shows, uh, preventing funds from being used to observe Pride Month, uh, climate amendments preventing DOD money from being used for any green energy initiatives or to reduce carbon initiatives, uh, carbon emissions. Uh, a lot of COVID uh, amendments prohibiting funds from being used to enforce uh, mask mandates or uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, of course, a lot of amendments to prohibit any security assistance for Ukraine or transfer of any equipment. Uh, though my favorites, my personal favorites, are the ones invoking the Holman Rule, which we've talked about previously, uh, which there are 10 uh, different amendments 
to reduce the salary of certain uniform and DOD uh, appointees. Uh, for example, there's an amendment to reduce the salary of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to $1, uh, to reduce the salary of Mark Milley to $1, uh, to reduce the salary of Sean Skelly, the Assistant Secretary for uh, Defense for Readiness, to one dollar. Uh, Gil Cisneros oversees is the Undersecretary for um, Personal Readiness to reduce his salary one dollar. There's a bunch of others like that. Just you know, the silliness uh, will continue next week. And and I just talked to a lot of the appropriators and, and the staff, and there's really not a lot of confidence that that bill actually will 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 pass next week. And and regardless, as we've said before, uh, there's not enough time to get appropriations bills done. There will need a CR. And that's the one thing that McCarthy and Schumer are in agreement on. But that's really about it. So uh, McConnell uh, came out strong earlier this week, actually supporting the administration's request to add that supplemental spending to the CR, the $40 billion, which includes aid to Ukraine, border security uh, and, and disaster relief. Uh, and, you know, McConnell's come out very strong on, on Ukraine, saying, uh, you know, this is a national security priority that, that Ukraine's not just fighting for its own independence, but it's also degrading the military of one of our biggest rivals. And he's just amazed uh, that this whole question of helping Ukraine defend themselves has become controversial. However, McCarthy is now saying that his plan is to bring a CR uh, that will include uh, disaster relief, uh, but will not include uh, Ukraine funding. He would like to have a separate package. Uh, tying Ukraine funding to additional uh, border uh, spending. Now, the Senate is saying, uh, and these are Republicans saying that if they send a supplemental over uh, a, a CR with the uh, disaster relief uh, tied to it to the Senate, that the Senate might add the Ukraine funding to it and send it back to the House, which is one of many scenarios uh, that could result uh, in a shutdown. And you know, we've talked right. a lot previously about members of the Hard Right Freedom Caucus are not afraid at all of a shutdown. They've made an extraordinary uh, list of demands uh, in order to get their support, not just for appropriations, but for uh, a CR. Uh, and a lot of those center around uh, spending as well as, uh, you know, wokeness in the military, defunding the DOJ and investigations. We have to, you know, rehash all of them, but there are new ones now coming out too. And some of them just border on, you know, beyond the silly. Uh, Congressman Clyde from uh, Georgia wants to defund the special counsel, Jack Smith, <clears throat> which is nothing new, but he also wants to defund um, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and Fulton County District Attorney uh, Fannie Willis's prosecution. However, uh, Bragg and, and Fannie Willis are not funded by the federal government. So, uh, well, they're, know, but, they're, but they're trying to find loophole ways in which federal funding touches them. Yes. They, you know, as deplorable as this right. is, right? They're right. trying to find the legalistic interpretation that if a dollar goes to it, federal dollar, then we it's going to be interesting to see how federal courts will rule on that, by the way, right, given how many Trump appointees have been some less than qualified Trump appointees are sitting in some of these jobs. That's true. Uh, but I will say this. I mean, a lot of these <clears throat> Trump uh, appointees to the bench were picked by the Federal Society. And you've seen members of the Federal Society uh, come out very strong supporting the argument that the 14th Amendment, Section three should apply to disqualifying uh, Trump from running for election again, which is a whole separate conversation. So, uh, you know, I well, think he was he was involved in an insurrection in the 14th exactly. Amendment says if you were involved in an insurrection, you're unsuitable for future office. I agree. You know, I, I have a law degree as well. I've, I've, I've looked at this. I looked I've read a lot of the articles written by both the right and the left. And I, that's the interpretation that I come out with as well. And I think for sure we're going to see this uh, battled in the courts and decided by the Supreme Court. But, you know, so let's, um, you know, switch to you know, this back to where we are on CR, because, as you mentioned, there's still a lot of talk of impeachment and tying impeachment to uh, getting a continuing resolution done, uh, which McCarthy's indicated he might be willing to do. And Matt Gates came out very strongly earlier this week uh, saying we need to force a vote on impeachment. Uh, and if McCarthy stands in our way, he may not have that job for long. And Trump right. came out saying that he wants to see uh, Ukraine aid tied to an impeachment uh, inquiry uh, of Biden. Okay. However, uh, the Freedom Caucus is far from united on that. And we have a lot right. of folks coming out saying that the two should be separated. And most notably, you know, Chip Roy, who I think is one of the really leading voices uh, on the right and always has a seat at the table for these negotiations, has warned the GOP leadership that promising an impeachment inquiry will not make up for their other demands in the funding fight. So right. uh, I, I see this um, really uh, un unraveling uh, on them. And right. I, I see, uh, so I don't think, I think spending is going to be the issue. And that's the thing we're talking about because the, the deficit projections 
over the break have increased. It looks like the, the projected annual deficit now for this fiscal year will be about $2 trillion. And that, I think, is going to be the main focus of these guys uh, you know, when, when they get back. Even 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 though there is discussion, right, that the uh, economy is uh, doing very, very well and tax coffers uh, will uh, increase. But it's always interesting listening to the CBO projections, which tend to be pretty accurate and are designed to be completely apolitical uh, in their uh, assessments. Uh, let's go to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act conference. Where are we on that? Because I got to get uh, we've got a lot more show to do and I got to get your take on Tuberville as well as the president's polls. Go ahead on NDAA. This will be very quick. So. Uh, what's considered the little, the little four, which are the staff directors for both the Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate, uh, both met uh, earlier this week to, uh, you know, what they say, touch gloves to figure out what the parameters are going to be of conference so the staff can start working at the staff level uh, to, to, to move the ball forward. So the NDA conference has now uh, be, uh, is underway. Conferees are not officially named yet. Uh, and, and that is one of the rubs here, right? Because, you know, we have seen that there were going to be for example, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene named as conferees in NDAA, uh, but will she be uh, an outside conferee or a core conferee uh, and other folks like her? That that remains to be seen. So the process on this is still being worked out, uh, but I've talked to both Republicans and Democrats. They want to get this bill done. They're committed to getting it done. I still believe that it will get done. Uh, interesting. Uh, Tuberville, um, extraordinary um, a letter uh, by all the service secretaries uh, making this case. Uh, we interviewed Frank Kendall uh, this week, uh, the Secretary of the Air Force, and you know he made the case uh, that it's a disgrace. Uh, and he noted that somebody on his staff uh, was mocked by uh, a PLA officer at a recent uh, event uh, over this issue. I mean, his point is the world is watching. Uh, you know, there are those who say that the administration is handling this poorly. Tommy Tuberville's point is they're not talking to me, and um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to change course. He doesn't care. He, you know, it doesn't matter how much Tom Cotton talks to him or Mitch McConnell or whomever. And Mitch McConnell is operating at, I think we can agree, unfortunately, 50 or fortunately, depending on what side you're on, uh, 50 percent capacity. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately, how does this get resolved? And don't you have to make an exception and just vote on at least the four stars to clear them? Because this is actually becoming a toxic issue among general officers who are apolitical but they're like, look, you guys are, you know, depending on what their personal politics are, maybe looking at this as, hey, look, you know, you're letting a political thing get in the way of me doing my job, and I'm, I want to get to my next assignment, and clock's ticking. No, you're, you're, you're exactly correct, right? And, and, and frankly, Elizabeth Warren, uh, in a private meeting among her colleagues uh, earlier this week, came out saying we have to do more uh, to, to move this uh, forward. Uh, just, but it's just unclear what, what that means. And there has been talk of, for example, putting CQ Brown's. Uh, confirmation up for a vote because Mark Milley's term ends at the end of uh, of, of October, or right, actually at the end of this month, I think October first. So, but Schumer uh, made clear earlier this week that he that Brown will not get a floor vote until Tupperville um, releases his blockade. His attitude is this problem is created by Republicans, so it's up to them uh, to solve it. Uh, and now it affects upwards of three hundred uh, senior officers promotion, and Tupperville. Is showing uh, no signs of backing down. Uh, in, in fact, you know, he says his you know his constituents um, are are supporting him. And there's all kinds of uh, uh, conspiracy theories out there. The latest one is that this is all part of the plan uh, to hold these up until Trump becomes president. So when Trump becomes president, he could put loyal military officers in those billets that would uh, support his, his the, the transfer of power. Uh, I I don't really. Uh, subscribe to that. Uh, but, you know, Tupperville has really become, you know, kind of a mini celebrity in right wing circles uh, over this. And you talk about you know, how the service secretaries uh, came out strong against him. You know, he responded to the Navy secretary with something really silly, uh, saying that uh, that, you know, we have to get wokeness out of the Navy because we've got people doing poems on aircraft carriers. And it's a really silly comment because you know, he's proven before in the past he's really no sense of history because he said that the reason we got uh, involved in World War II was to combat socialism. Uh, so I think you know, it's kind of important to note that actually, you know, he talks about writing poems on aircraft carriers. Star Spangled Banner, I mean, the lyrics come from uh, an amateur poet named Francis Scott Key who was witnessing a naval battle, right. you know, the bombardment right. of, of Fort McHenry uh, during the War of 1812. Right. Right. Uh, so just, you know, these people make themselves look, look more and more ludicrous, but everybody's digging in. The fight's becoming personal and there's really uh, no end in sight to this. And and uh, the department is, uh, you know, has released a detailed list of just pointed out uh, on our uh, text uh, uh, chat uh, that, um, you know, the, the DOD is making the case that th they should all be 
you know what I mean? They don't want to set the precedent of splitting these apart. You're either dropping your hold uh, and and we're not going to do this uh, selectively because it, they look at this as a principal uh, matter. I, I'm, you know, Tuberville in his mind sees this as a principal matter as well. And at least release the names of all of the affected, uh, which is a considerable list. Very quickly, latest poll uh, is not good for uh, the incumbent uh, president and shows him actually in a statistical heat. And in fact, Trump ahead uh, in, in this, uh, you know, his case has been, I'm best suited to beat Trump. I beat him the last time. Biden is not getting any credit basically for any of the accomplishments he's, uh, made in office. Uh, and in fact, uh, his age and everything else, you know, almost everything that would be a positive has become a millstone around his neck ultimately. Uh, you know, and even though those around Trump, right, Trump's got 91 indictments and, you know, Bannon and Navarro, uh, we're both convicted for not testifying to the January 6th commission on and on and on and on very quickly. I mean, where, where do you fall on this too early, uh, to tell, or, uh, are, are those, uh, who have said that, Hey, look, Trump is going to win the second time around vindicated here or, or does you know, Nikki Haley end up, you know, getting it? Cause Nikki Haley is polling ahead of the president at this point with independents and Republicans or a summer poll. The only poll that matters is the poll on November 5th, 2024. And we are a long ways away from that, right? Uh, but uh, we've seen um, the former president's numbers only increase in the primary. Uh, so you don't talk about Haley. I think it's a pipe dream. Uh, I don't see how Trump does not win uh, the, Rep the Republican presidential nomination unless he's disqualified under the 14th Amendment. Uh, right. One, DeSantis continues to sink. I think a lot of those voters are going back to Trump because DeSantis is just Trump by another name. Uh, but you know, I've talked to some of my colleagues and friends on the Hill, and they were telling me, like, you know, before these indictments, some people were softer on Trump. And we saw Trump's numbers were still uh, very strong. But once these indictments started coming down, people actually uh, among the base started to support him even more because they feel that the government's coming after him and it actually strengthened his, his hand. Now, I'm. I think that we're a nation of laws, and that these indictments and these court actions are 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 things that we need to do, and are correct. But I think the opposite is true on the other side. I mean, you saw too what happened with Adam Schiff when he got censured uh, by the House. That only helped his numbers in California and helped his right. poll numbers. So, um, you know, I think that the Democrats need to to do a better job of rallying around Biden. The thing that disgusts me the most is watching, you know, Democratic members of the House and Senate being interviewed. Uh, by on television saying, do you support the president for reelection? And, you know, some of them hem and haw over it. You know, well, we've got to see if he's really running, blah, blah, you know. I mean, yes, the answer is yes, we support yes, him. And I think they've exactly. got to talk about uh, the, the, the accomplishments. And I think they've got to make their case for the things that they've done and also the things that they want to do. And at the same time, I think the president and the Democrats need to do a better job of making the case for things like Ukraine, you know, and to tell that story and you know, at the same time, I think the president needs to to regain that mantle of being a unifier, that not talk about the MAGA Republicans, but talk to those MAGA Republicans. Don't talk right. about them and get their backup. We are all in this together. We all share the same hopes and fears and concerns, and we need to talk about how we're going to go forward together. We may disagree on the policy, but now is the time for some statesmanship and leadership and to end, you know, the, 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 the finger pointing. And it, look, it didn't work for Hillary Clinton. But and she talked about a basket of deplorables, you know, right. referring to these guys as MAGA Republicans. It's just an, an, another way of saying that. And I think it's a mistake. Um, I'm going to move on. Thank you very much uh, for all of that. Uh, just a really uh, quick word from all of our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's airspace cyber conference and trade show uh, this uh, coming uh, week. Dove, uh, very quickly on the political dynamics here and on the the, the budgetary uh, play. Uh, and uh, also you wrote uh, a great piece, Assailing Tommy Tuberville, uh, again, uh, not in the Hill, not that it's going to make that big of a difference, even though your words are always sage. Walk us through uh, on, on all of this and your uh, thoughts. And Jim and Patrick, thanks very much for your patience. We're going to get to you guys in just a second. Go ahead. Yeah, very briefly, um, on the budget, uh, my sense is they may be able to avoid a shutdown. Uh, I'm hearing on the Hill, and, and uh, Michael can uh, confirm or deny this, 
that everybody recognizes how tough it's going to be for McCarthy to work his way through the minefield of the crazies on the right and his reluctance to use any Democratic votes. But they're working real hard uh, to try to make that happen. Uh, and so if there is a shutdown, my guess is it's going to be relatively short because both sides will realize that the other side is going to blame them for it. And then they'll come up with a CR. And then the question really is, is this con continuing resolution going to go till the end of December or will it be a year long as many of them want? And uh, I don't think that one can even be uh, thought about until they figure out whether they're, they're going to close the government down and uh, how long that might run. So that's my take. Maybe Michael has a different uh, one on that. Well, um, the only thing I would mention just real quick on the CR, I think the choices on the CRs right now, the length is either one that runs until like the beginning of November or one that runs into sometime in December. Um, the, no one's going to support a year-long CR at this point. So it's just a question of the length. And the House Republicans don't want this butting up against the Christmas holidays, uh, which they feel would force them into an omnibus situation. So, uh, yeah, the only reason I say one year is because I do keep hearing it. Um, oh, yeah, we do too. But I think if we end up with a year-long CR, we wouldn't hit, hit that until next year. That That's will correct. That, yeah, that's exactly. correct. I, I agree with that. On the Tupperville thing, what I wrote today was simply that the impact on families is much, much deeper than just, for instance, uh, a permanent change of station and, okay, I don't know where I'm going to move. For instance, and, and I was told this by, by uh, uh, a, somebody who really knows what they're talking about, um, that if you've got a senior in high school who uh, is on his or her way to, say, uh, an Ivy League college, and all of a sudden Tommy Tupperville decides, okay, fine, I'm giving in, and it's the middle of the year, that person probably, that kid is probably going to lose that place in that college. What about little kids who, who might have to make a whole bunch of new friends in the middle of the year? And what's the psychological impact? And the worst of it, which people don't think too much about, what about military families with special needs? And you are you don't know where you're going to move, when you're going to move, how are you going to move, and you've got a child with special needs. So what Tupperville is doing, it's beyond what uh, Secretary Del Toro said, which is essentially that he's helping the communists, which he is, uh, the Russians and the and Chinese, but he's really damaging ordinary American families that may or may, that may have serious problems and it's just downright cruel uh i i would uh i would uh, i agree with you uh entirely uh on that uh dove um all right well uh, unfortunately uh moving on jim uh thanks very much for your patience pa uh, patrick doubly thanks for your patience um despite uh some uh criticism that the ukrainians uh you know were moving slowly and you know not quickly enough and the offensive has stalled they really do appear to be gaining ground and actually gaining it in a pretty sustained uh, fashion. They're hitting uh, Russia increasingly uh, to the point where Russians are wondering, look, why, why, how are we vulnerable and how are we getting hit this far away? Like, how is Moscow getting hit uh, by these uh, Ukrainians? The Russians, on the other hand, are rather methodically destroying Ukraine's grain stocks and port facilities to make it impossible for them to be able to get this grain out. Emmanuel Macron, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were on break, discussed you know, making a sea corridor to try to get uh, the the grain out. It, you know how, and we were talking about a, uh, a sea corridor for grain like a year ago, and then we talked about it again when Russia walked away from the grain deal and started targeting grain infrastructure right on the other side of the Danube from Romania to the point where Romanians are now afraid because some of the debris is ending up on their side uh, of uh, the the river. Is it too late to rescue any of Ukraine's grain supplies at this point? I well, mean, is there I, any deal or anything that we can do that fixes this ultimately? Well, it certainly doesn't look like there's any grounds for a deal. I, I think as things get worse for Russia uh, on the battlefield, uh, particularly as uh, the U.S. Uh, Abrams tanks are going to be coming in with their depend with their uh, uh, DU, uh, you know, their uh, munitions depleted uranium depleted uranium uh, munitions coming in, F-16s next year. There's things that aren't going well for Russia on the battlefield, as well as support from the West. And so as things get worse, he's not going to be in a mood to make deals on anything. 
So I think I think whether it's Macron's idea for a uh, some type of sea corridor or trying to find alternatives uh, that I know Romania and others have been doing for how do you get the grain out? I think that's where we've got to really focus uh, because because we're not going to get a deal from the Russians and being under their thumb every year, you know, uh, having to deal with this issue uh, last year, this year, probably next year. We've got to find something that helps us get the grain out. That's not going to hinge on uh, Russian approval. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, so to answer your question, I don't see a, a uh, deal, uh, but I do see uh, the uh, offensive beginning to really get some ground now. And if we can get those Abrams in there with the, the uh, depleted uranium rounds, which are, as we all know, quite the tank killer when it comes to Russian tanks, particularly, I think we're going to see a little more optimism about uh, the the offensive, and that's not stalled, but that finally we're going to get some some traction on the battlefield. It's not around the corner, uh, but we're getting there, and I think that's something that uh, is at least a little bit of good news in the future. Um, do uh, you um, what? How do you perceive uh, the President Zelensky's um, firing or relieving of command? His uh, defense minister, who has been. Um, Alexei uh, Reznikov, uh, who has become a face of the war, uh, has become very popular in capitals uh, and regarded as a pretty solid guy. Um, the issue appears to be, you know, a, an inability to combat the corruption that's in the ministry. I think Zelensky is very careful, knowing that he's dependent on international aid. Uh, the uh, uh, Rustem uh, Omarov, uh, a Crimean uh, Tatar, although we should say that he's a Ukrainian, right? Of Crimean Tatar origin. And that's a fascinating story in and of itself on how all of that happened. But anyway, um, why is it vital that Zelensky, Zelensky keep uh, fighting uh, corruption? And does a change this important of somebody who's been so instrumental in the successes to date, like moving him out of the way, does that potentially cause problems? Or, or is it more important for him to fight corruption from your standpoint? Well, from my standpoint, it's more important to fight corruption. I mean, going back to what Michael and Dove were saying in terms of just U.S. politics, uh, I don't want to give the crazy Republicans and others a club to beat us over the head with in terms of working with Ukraine. One of the flags, the bloody shirts that they wave uh, is this idea that uh, we're sending all this money into Ukraine uh, and it's just disappearing because of all the corruption, et cetera. So uh, we've got to make sure that uh, there's a story there about how Ukraine is fighting that, that it's not like the old days. Uh, Zelensky actually is doing uh, things uh, to fight corruption and removing the Minister of Defense. Again, he's not the one that's where the finger's being pointed, but under his watch, there's been some problems in terms of corruption. And I think this kind of thing is important for us to be able to push back on this on these Republican charges. So so it is important to do that in terms of of having a turnover uh, such as it is with the Minister of Defense. We all know that's what happens in wartime. There's a lot of different reasons behind his removal, I'm sure, that we don't even know concerning Ukraine bureaucratic politics. And uh, there's other things involved in terms of a backstory. It's not unusual. I, I, I'm not clutching my pearls over this, uh, but um, I think they've got a good a good candidate coming in to take his place. And let's see where things things go. Uh, so. So, yeah, we got to be fighting corruption. We got to be helping Ukraine do that. We got to be supporting Zelensky in doing that. That's got to be a top priority for us. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, Slovakia. Uh, this is uh, the latest country we've talked about, right? I mean, at this point, Viktor Orban is actively hostile toward Ukrainians, uh, propagating all sorts of falsehoods uh, about Ukraine, uh, you know, digging in. He's at war both with the EU and, and NATO. I believe these organizations have got to crack the whip on him. If if you don't want to be part of the EU, we will excise you of all the benefits you get, Viktor Orban, and all the money that flows to you. And I'm glad that some of that has been restrained, just like some of it has been restrained to Poland as well uh, for uh, some of its rhetoric and its actions. Uh, but although I think Poland is being a tremendously important ally and, and, and partner. What's at stake in Slovakia? How serious is this? And And put this in the context of the broader sort of Russian information operation to undermine the nations, particularly those on the border, right? If you can pick off enough countries, it makes it impossible, for example, to have a sea route that takes your uh, stuff down uh, to Turkey, for example. Assuming, by the way, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is even going to permit that, right? Because he was right. pretty conciliatory uh, 
toward, you know, it's st- he was still airing grievances towards the alliance, right? So this whole notion he's turned a leaf and we go back to normal is BS. Well, yeah, I mean, Turkey's always hovering in the background. So we can talk about, uh, you know, navigation channels and things like that, alternatives to getting the grain out. But if it's going to be seaborne, uh, you know, you got to pay the the ticket master there. And that's uh, that's the Erdogan. So that's a whole nother story. But on Slovakia, uh, I, I think the first thing to think about there is this is a great example for all of us to understand how Russia goes about its influence campaigns. Uh, what we're seeing in Slovakia is not something new. Uh, they have become very good at doing this uh, across Europe, where there are openings for Russia to to manipulate, um, whether it's elections or social media or or whatever it might be. We see it in our own country, you know. This, so this is this is this is just another example of how uh, how Russia is able to find these uh, cracks in a in a country's uh, elect- elections, whatever it might be, and exploit it. So former Prime Minister Fico, who runs this uh, far right party there, uh, SMER, S-M-E-R, you know, this is Fico's been around a long time. I think I even met him when I was at NATO years ago. Uh, So 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 that's not new, but it's but it just is a um, it is something for us to worry about in the sense that whether it's in France or whether it's in Germany, uh, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of far right. Uh, parties that can get uh, Russian support and that can find themselves suddenly more popular than they might have been in the past because of debate over Ukraine. And so as the West, we have to be worried about worried about this type of thing. Slovakia, you know, it's a six million uh, person, a smaller uh, country there. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we can't just dismiss them because they're not a major power in Europe. Uh, we've got to be concerned about that. We've got to help as best we can without meddling in the affairs of another nation. But as far as the United States is concerned, we have to be as helpful as we can to help these nations push back on Russian misinformation and Russian manipulation. We've got to make sure we do that in our own country, too. So so for me, Slovakia shows why it's got to be a top priority for the West and for the United States to address head on uh, Russian influence campaigns. Jim, is there any other uh, sort of European trend or alliance trend that you spotted that you want to weigh in on uh, as well before before we move on? No, I, the only thing I don't want to take time away from Patrick. I always enjoy listening to him. But the Blinken visit, I think, to Kiev was a very good visit. Uh, and uh, the decision. So? On, yeah, uh, it was very good in terms of as a billion dollar package. A lot of it focused on the future, on shoring up their finance and their economy, as well as the military side. I think the optics of him being there was important just to uh, reassure Ukraine and to message uh, Moscow that we're not going anywhere. And this is also important for the Republicans to see, too, I think. I, I, dipped, I tipped my hat to Mike. But I think uh, the Republicans needed, needed to also see that uh, in terms of trying to undermine what we're doing, we're moving forward very strongly on this support for Ukraine. We hope we can bring them along. We're going to need them. But that this is something that's not going to be put on a back burner in terms of this administration. Uh, that's an uh, excellent uh, point. Uh, uh, Patrick, stand by one more second. Uh, and a reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Uh, Patrick, uh, we were talking about information, disinformation. Uh, let's start with the Chinese influence uh Uh, campaigns that were uh, unraveled. We have a tendency of believing this in our mind's eye, that it's a Russian thing, uh, whereas actually Beijing is exceptionally sophisticated in its intelligence operations, you know, whether on a state and local level, whether it's at the in academia, whether it's across uh, industry uh, and even harnessing the likes of the, you know, American Chamber of Commerce to do your bidding, uh, it's bidding for it. Um, You know, we now have a Facebook uh, unhinging over the past four years, what it said was the most extensive influence operation it's ever discovered. Uh, and then Microsoft actually followed up with an announcement pretty similar uh, to that. What does it tell us uh, about how we should be preparing for these threats and the extent of China's influence? I mean, CNN did a great piece. Despite all of the concerns we have about China, Chinese are buying enormous amounts of property across the United States. Well, it's a vast subject. Uh, China's 
posing a threat on many fronts here. We're highly vulnerable, both in our critical technologies and in our um, critical infrastructure and cyberspace in particular. And yet, Chinese influence operations are not having the impact that they're intending. Um, just take the example of the attack on the Fukushima water release by Japan, which has right. been treated to one fortieth the level of what's safe uh, by standards. And yet China's talking about contaminated water and it's backfiring. Uh, and yet they're stuck with that line. So we have to make sure that we balance out what they're trying to do um, in terms of prepping the battlefield, in terms of permeating our open systems and our technologies to influence us and influence societies and businesses and their actual impact. So uh, it's a it's a it's a battle that's being waged increasingly. So and uh, we have to compete. But like everything else that I see going on in the security environment, um, we have better than a fighting chance of deterring war in Asia, um, of competing with China, if not outcompeting them, and still building an order, as we see at the G20 versus, say, the BRICS summit. So there are a lot of things that are going our way, even while the challenge is getting bigger. I, I would just like to say that on the nuclear uh, water, uh, radioactive water release, uh, completely agreed about the facts of the matter. But it is still... Uh, you know, gaining an enormous amount of traction in South Korea, where there is a little bit of discomfort at how Seoul has moved uh, so quickly uh, into, uh, you know, an alliance, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, with uh, Tokyo, uh, as well as uh, sort of across the region. So, I mean, even if it's complete BAS, it has gained traction, hasn't it, in a dangerous way? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these are inseparable forces that are going on, right? But we still have inside Seoul, President Yoon Suk-ol, and he is leading a strategic reorientation of South Korea, at least on his watch for the rest of right. his t tenure. Um, and that is more significant, I would say, than the opposition at the moment. Now, it may be in four years, we get a an opposition in power that tries to reverse some of these things. That's all the more reason why we have to act on things like the Camp David summit, the trilateral summit with Biden, Yoon, and Kishida, to try to implement serious measures that strengthen the defense and security cooperation and the technology supply chain cooperation across South Korea, Japan, and the United States. The fact that we have a South Korean leader, though, that is so keen to play a bigger role in the region and to work on an Indo-Pacific strategy with Japan and the United States is more important than the uh, sort of chirping from, from the seats. Um, let me ask uh, about uh, the G20 meeting, which you, uh, you know, as we were getting ready, uh, you were most interested in addressing uh, that. Xi Jinping uh, is uh, skipping that, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, Washington. And Washington has asked Beijing not to uh, snipe from the sidelines. Gina Raimondo, as I, I mentioned uh, at the top of, or may have mentioned at the top of the show, uh, if I didn't, the Commerce Secretary returned uh, from China, which she said was a very productive visit where she delivered some hardwood, but also uh, how the two can continue to trade. Obviously, the Chinese economy is in deep, deep shape, uh, something that Dove is, uh, and you both have articulately uh, talked about. What, what do you expect from the G20 at this point? Uh, and the mechanics of Biden's sort of methodical efforts to bring allies and partners together on China, right? Even if Cambodia is going to, you know, is building a naval base for the PLA, at the end of the day, everybody's sort of coalescing, aren't they? I mean, what, what are you looking for to come out of this summit? Well, we don't look for hard agreement across 20 countries, but we do look for both India to play a bigger role. It's Modi's uh, coming out party here in many ways. You know, India is hoping to become the bigger driver of global growth here over the next 10 or 15 years, bigger than China. Right now, it's about 15% of global growth versus China, 35%. But China's economic doldrums and India's rise are going to change that pretty quickly. I think the important thing for U.S. policy, though, is that this is a potential bridge to the global south, so-called. So President Biden is smartly going to talk about reviving institutions we help to build. World Bank, International Monetary Fund, part of the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, coming out of World War II, um, rather than the BRICS agreement that China would like to see both expanded and move toward de-dollarization and move toward uh, a block that the U.S. has no influence over. Um, and so this is uh, a real opportunity for India, the EU, the United States, our G7 uh, allies and partners to show that there is a better alternative than the Belt and Road Initiative and the new development bank that China's backing with the new promises of billions of dollars. 
Um, let me uh, go to Dove because Dove uh, turns into a pumpkin in about uh, three minutes. Dove, just real quickly, a Middle East update. Netanyahu cozying up to China, we've discussed. Uh, you know, Iran uh, always up to a little bit of no good. And anything else you want to comment on before we part? Well, let me add one thing to what Patrick said. Uh, India looks like it's getting a big win. It's Modi has been pushing for the African Union to become uh, part of the G20 like the European Union is. Uh, and it looks like that's going to happen. So that's a very big deal for India and an and a indication of their influence and growing influence economically, politically, militarily. Uh, the big story in many ways uh, in the Middle East is what didn't happen. And that is the uh, there seem to have been uh, secret talks between uh, brokered by Italy, it looks like, between Israel and Libya to get Libya to join the Abraham Accords. Um the foreign minister or somebody under him leaked the story, the Israeli foreign minister. Uh, the uh, Libyan foreign minister was immediately fired. The president of Libya, now this is the internationally recognized government because there's this other government that uh, General Haftar runs, but this, this is the recognized government. Um, the prime minister immediately announced uh, that uh, this was not going to happen. Libya has a history of being uh, very supportive of the Palestinians. And uh, Netanyahu initially kind of tried to distance himself from it. Uh, and uh, he now acknowledged, of course, that he knew all about it, uh, as one might have expected with a guy like that. The real issue here is that Netanyahu uh, has been desperately trying to get the Saudi deal to get them to join uh, the Abraham Accords and for us to give away all sorts of things. Uh, including letting the Saudis start a, a, their own uh, nuclear program, nu uh, civilian nuclear program, and get some kind of guarantee like the Israelis get from us. Um, but I was speaking to a senior State Department official just the other day, and the best he could put on it was 40%. And I think the complication right. with Libya um, and the way the foreign ministry messed it up and the leaks and everything else, which is not the way the Saudis like to operate at all, uh, I think that's just going to make things even worse. And at the same time, uh, there seems to be no end to the pressures on the street. Uh, the, there are hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating every week uh, in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. Um, the religious parties are insisting that uh, people who study in seminaries uh, are equivalent to people who are fighting and being shot at on the front line and want legislation to that effect. Um, Netanyahu is finding that the web he created is starting to choke him. And of course, there are many of us who hope that'll happen. Uh, and uh, anything uh, worth uh, discussing on Iran? Well, the, the, you know, the, the, there are two things that are still going on. One is uh, the non-progress uh, on any kind of nuclear deal and the fact that we still don't really know what happened to Rob Malley who was the lead negotiator and, and the Republicans in the House really are trying to dig into that and talking about lack of transparency. Uh, and they do have a point there. Um, and uh, generally speaking, the Iranians uh, are uh, pushing. They actually had a training, uh, ex an exercise on one of the uh, islands that the Shah seized from the Emirates, uh, the Greater Tombs Island. And that, of course, is sticking it to the United Arab Emirates and to Abu Dhabi in particular, which means that all this cozying up between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, to some extent, it's, uh, yes, uh, a, a reflection of the rivalry between the Emirates and the Saudis and a reflection of Chinese influence. But on the other hand, it the, the, the exercise tells you that there are limits to how far the Gulf Arabs can go with Iran, because today it'll be the greater tombs. And the Saudis always worry that tomorrow it'll be Jebel or somewhere in the eastern province. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dov. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope you have a great week uh, and a great weekend. And see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Patrick, uh, I just want to go back to you, uh, to you, and um, there were a couple of themes there that I want to uh, discuss in greater detail uh, next week. Uh, but I want to get to uh, the seven nanometer chip uh, that uh, Huawei released in their new uh, cell phone. It's uh, you know by all accounts ITAR free. I mean, obviously we haven't had a chance to inspect it, uh, but the message to Washington was a clear one that despite your sanctions over these years, we're going to produce ITAR free chips. 
Um, right when we were putting holds on satellite exports, as all of us remember, uh, the United States went from the leader in the global satellite business to actually not being really in it uh, because in the wake of uh, technology making it to uh, China that improved their ballistic missile program, we decided to lock down. By the time we unlocked, the rest of the world had created ITAR-free uh, satellites. Uh, so it's this notion of control sometimes we have as opposed to the reality of it. What does this entire episode actually tell us about how we can technolo technologically stop China at this point? I mean, th for five decades, since 1972, the best and the brightest of China have been educated in the best schools in the world. They've worked at some of the best companies in the best research labs. I mean, it is it is inconceivable that China is not going to be able to stand on its own technological feet. Well, um, sure. First, in the context of the fact that China is still facing this economic stagnation to which Xi Jinping is uh, responding with political repression. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not working. He's not the man to reform China. So that's one problem they have at top. So all the bright economic thinkers they have in China, and they have many um, in technologists, they're being led by somebody who's got a political lens uh, and is, seems to be uh, a, a adverse to the uh, economic solutions that China needs. Now, on this technological solution, sanctions are always just going to be something that slows down an adversary or a competitor. Um, and I think there's every reason to believe that the export controls are slowing China down. Certainly, China is extremely upset about them. They're also responding to them. And so clearly, China's had to spend tens of billions of dollars to help this seven nanometer chip uh, that SMIC apparently uh, created, the Chinese uh, chip manufacturer. Um, and they were able to do this and embarrass uh, Gina Raimondo uh, during her uh, visit, which was supposed to be a constructive visit. Uh, and here they go out of their way to uh, reveal the Huawei smartphone saying, uh, you know, up yours, uh, America, we don't care about your export restrictions. But they barely got through this seven nanometer. Meanwhile, you know, Apple and others are moving on with much uh, sort of smaller chips uh, and, and and more capabilities that China's lagging on still. So, um Jake Sullivan was always clear that the export restrictions were nothing but a measure to buy some time and to try to slow down the use of this commercial technology advances that could go in, modernize the PLA but directly against our national security interests. And I think that still uh, is true. Um, so both things are true, that China is able to make some progress at some expense, um, but uh, not nearly as fast as they would like uh, if we were uh, not restricting most advanced chips and technologies. Uh, I uh, it is uh, it is absolutely fascinating to watch. Right, it doesn't mean that we have to continue exporting it, but I mean, this to me was th this is a technological barn door we're trying to close. Well, well after the horses uh, are are gone, Jim. Let me just bring you into this very very uh, quickly because um, the European allies and partners are sort of uh, struggling. I, I tar just triggered this because you're somebody who's deeply scarred uh, in a lifetime of of, of transatlantic service. Uh, by this issue. And this administration has done a terrific job or or maybe too loud of a job, a terrific, I mean, by terrifying amount of rhetoric of, about buying American and the importance of buying American. That then uh, encourages a whole bunch of bad behavior across the board. Uh, at the same time, when the Pentagon is increasingly talking about friendshoring and buy allied and we have to harness, you know, and Europeans, uh, and I'm going to be at the uh, at DSCI next week in London, so I'll get a little bit of a better uh, sense of this. But whether I've been in Paris or in London or Germany or Rome or anywhere else, there is still a concern that when we talk about buy American, we really mean buy American. And all the investment, right, and the breakdown of sort of the global free trade has got a lot of our allies and partners a little bit skeptical. How skeptical are they? And what is it that Washington needs to do to reassure them? Because unless we do this together, we're really hosed. And I think that the notion that we're somehow going to do this by ourselves, thankfully, the infrastructure and the climate measure has enough uh, in it that we're actually investing in advancing European technology and building it in America, uh, right? I mean, many of these clean technologies are are not American, unfortunately, even though once we had a lead on it. What's, what's your sense and what does the administration in the U.S. system have to do to calm folks down and actually strike the kind of partnerships we need to on this, especially when you see China looming in the background the way it is. Well, I, you know, you, you, you raised the perennial issue. This has been an issue for decades, decades by America. I mean, Michael will certainly agree with this. I mean, by America is good politics. 
Buy America has always been a feature of American politics. And by the way, buy Great Britain and buy European is good politics in Europe, too. So that's that's quite the pull uh, to uh, to establish policies like that, Um, uh, you know, and, and so. At the end of the day, though, we do know we've got to do these things together in partnership. A lot of these things, cooperation in, in arms manufacture, cooperation in uh, in technology dealing with climate change, regulations on AI. I mean, there's so many things we have to do together uh, that might uh, run up against this idea of buy America, or at least the spirit of it. So, again, whether it's during the Cold War or after, I mean, this has always been a problem. Where do you find the balance? We're never going to fix right. this. I, you, I think that's the first thing you got to say. The second thing is that the only way you can you can deal with it is by tackling a specific issue, a specific technology, a specific need to do cooperative uh, cooperation with one another, and then to work that bureaucrat- bureaucratically and on the hill to get a cutout for it. It takes a long time to do that. IRA is a great example of uh, how to find a cutout. Uh, to deal with uh, the Buy America impact on Europe. And so, uh, but that's the only way to do it. You're right, right about the rhetoric. You know, the administration has been great on rhetoric. That's one thing they've got no shortage of. But to sit down and do the pick and shovel work of of putting together something that is okay politically and helps us deal with the problem, it takes a lot of work around the table. We can do it. We've done it. But that's really the only way to tackle it. It will never go away by America. Uh, and at the same time, and, and maybe it shouldn't, frankly, but at the same time, increasingly working together with our partners overseas is 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 imperative. And uh, that just means we've got to work harder to find ways to do that. Um, let me uh, we have uh, a minute uh, and I completely uh, followed this up. Uh, Patrick, talk about uh, North Korea's uh, claim. Kim Jong-un was wearing a uh, borrowed naval cover uh, at the inauguration of their strategic uh, sea-based uh, deterrent, uh, which looks like a conventionally powered uh, submarine, uh, a little bit reminiscent of the Gulf uh, class, uh, but appears, uh, you know, and may carry missiles. They've been working on miniaturization. Uh, what do you make of uh, the announcement? Does it change the ball game at all? And if so, how? If not, why not? Sure. So this was a launch this week of a tactical nuclear attack submarine is what they call this so-called hero Kim Gung-uk, a converted Romeo class uh, diesel electric sub. And they've got about 20 of them. So we don't know how many more might be coming. Uh, Design given by the Soviets back in the early 60s based on the 1950s design with this new top sail that can apparently hold two different types of missiles, maybe a short range or medium range ballistic missile that's been tested and maybe also a cruise missile. So it's now on its uh, shakedown cruise. And according to South Korean intelligence, they said it didn't go well. well. We'll have to wait and see what kind of analysis comes out. But what's clear is that Kim Jong-un has a long-standing desire to deploy a nuclear deterrent at sea. He's tested nuclear ballistic missiles of various ranges, cruise missiles, even undersea nuclear drones. Uh, and he's claiming that these are coming in the future. And so this is the beginning. And he taunted the Americans and the South Koreans by saying, see, this is the same thing as if North Korea had basically launched an SSBN. Um, which, of course, they might be building. He claims they are building a nuclear-powered submarine that eventually will be able to fire a long-range intercontinental uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile later this decade, but we'll have to wait and see. There's a lot of skepticism and doubt. He's overplaying what they've done so far, but his ambitions are very clear and real and being tested every day. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Great to be back uh, in regular order, even if uh, lawmakers are not and uh, a lot of things are uh, frustrating. Uh, Anyway, thanks very much. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend, terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. And thanks to our audience for joining us. We appreciate it very much. A very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. And a thanks to all of our sponsors uh, that help uh, make our daily programming a reality. Uh, and hope that everybody has a great weekend and look forward uh, to having you join us uh, again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Thanks very much and have a great day.